Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to episode 12 of the Love Capades podcast. In the last read, we heard about Michelle's hilarious Mrs. Robinson experience with a much younger Nick. And then she moved on to one of her most significant romances with the banker. She left us hanging off a cliff wondering what happened after his infamous remark, you're beautiful, brilliant, successful, and powerful. And there are probably only three men in the world who could handle you. I can't wait to find out what happens next. Well, that little conversation at dinner launched our affair. The dinner became a dance of flirtation a tango of seduction. At one point, Lance leaned across the table and kissed me in a way that made me want more. After way too much fermented juice of the grape that night, it was clear I couldn't safely drive home. So Lance insisted I come back to his bank-arranged apartment. Before long, I was introduced to the biggest four-poster bed I'd ever seen. It took up nearly all the space in the bedroom. He helped me out of my dress and undies and onto the big bad bed. Little did I know that photo in the newspaper would lead to Rapunzel letting down her hair. He was a married man, something I'd tried so hard to avoid, but the forces of nature were too strong to resist this time. He had read me, and he wanted what he saw. That is the strongest of all aphrodisiacs. The next morning, I found myself standing next to him, naked, in the bathroom, doing my best to brush my teeth without a toothbrush. He looked at me in the mirror and said, You are so beautiful. Even as he said it, I thought, But my body is too chubby. Those ingrained, idiotic impressions are evil enemies of well-being. I wish there were a potion one could take to eradicate them. A large bouquet of red roses arrived at my office later that day. The card said, Thanks for all your help. For the sake of circumspection, no one could suspect what the hidden message really was, but I knew. Our attraction was explosive, but from the start, the affair was charged with issues. Lance was very Catholic, the Notre Dame-going kind of Catholic. I don't doubt he loved his wife and children, but he clearly liked to stray, too. As time went on, we even talked about his other affairs and how he almost left his marriage one time. But he hadn't left. These were clarion signals that Mr. Banker was a ladies' man and that I would be wise to steer clear. But again, the heart wants what it wants. He was a charming, successful man, and being with him was exciting. 
I felt heaps of contrition about his being married, as I'm sure Lance did in his own way. Perhaps Presbyterians don't have as much guilt baked into their theology as their Catholic cousins, but the same Ten Commandments scream just as loudly. I believe we both tried to behave, but it simply didn't work. Lance told me that he desired me from the moment he first saw me that rainy Sunday in my office, and my interest grew like a wildfire each time I saw him. Our second date was as titillating as the first. He came down to Menlo Park to take me to dinner before flying home for the weekend. It was a warm spring evening, so we started with cocktails in my gazebo. As with my first date with Bobby all those years before, I remember what I wore, a pale peach linen shift dress, which flattered the tone of my skin and hair. Not only do I remember what I wore, but I recall what we both ate, grilled salmon and Caesar salad, two of my all-time favorites. But the real main course that night was the frenzied flirtation. We were both so flambéed in infatuation that when Lance dropped me at home on his way to the airport, he said that he could hardly bear to leave me. And then from the airport, he called to say that he was falling in love with me. That, my friends, is romance. How could I resist it? In a word, I couldn't. Just before he closed escrow on the Atherton house, we did the perfunctory walkthrough to make sure the property was in the same condition it was when placed under contract. But this was no ordinary inspection. We arrived in the upstairs master bedroom. Mind you, the entire house was vacant by this time. To a sea of the ugliest carpet you can conjure. Large, swirling, jauntous colored flowers that resembled a Hawaiian shirt, which had been blown up tenfold, covered the large expanse. Beyond ugly. So what did we do? We christened the carpet by making hungry, hot love right on top of it. This scene definitely makes my top 10 love capade moments. My affair with Lance was a taffy pull of emotion. He admitted the sexual attraction was overwhelming, but both of us knew we were nibbling on forbidden fruit. This played itself out in the boudoir. Sometimes the passion was perfect and sometimes guilt intervened. Those times, Lance would hold me for hours, often until dawn, while we told each other stories and made each other laugh. He learned about my time spent in Italy, and I found out about his Peace Corps service in Ecuador. All the while, Lance was experiencing a struggle other than what to do about our powerful connection. The situation at the bank was complicated. According to him, they needed a professional CFO, but they didn't know how to integrate him effectively into the system. I believe he became disenchanted with the job and was therefore ambivalent about uprooting his family and moving them all the way out west. In the meantime, my close girl buddies knew that I was seeing Lance, and naturally they wanted to meet him. We were all invited to a big dance at the local country club on a Saturday in mid-June. I asked Lance if he were brave enough to be my date, and he said yes. 
I was happy as a clam at high tide and immediately began to shop for my outfit. In the end, I chose a flowy white chiffon number with a low décolleté fit for a goddess. But a few days before the gala, Lance told me he decided it would be too risky to be seen with me in such a public way when his family would be living in the very community before long. I was crushed. He should have said that in the first place. Another example of our shaky situation. Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. Perhaps Cupid's arrow aimed at the two of us had hit the bullseye, but it turned out to be a target fraught with frustration. My girlfriends frantically rallied around to find me a replacement date. They succeeded. He turned out to be the head of human resources at none other than Wells Fargo. How ironic. The day of the party, I called my mother and filled her in on the latest in the Lance story. With great empathy and sincerity in her voice, she said, I hope the new guy turns out to be the one, Michelle. I can still hear those sweet words ringing in my ears. I'd like to push the pause button for a moment to tell you a little something about my mother. I trust you will see why shortly. She was beautiful, kind-hearted, popular with friends, spoiled by her doting father, and adored by her husband, who always thought he'd married up. But she had diva tendencies, too, and expected to be the center of attention. One anecdote, which I cherish, demonstrates this better than all others. Our family mode of communication had always been argument, that is, heated discourse. All four of us, including my younger brother, had strong personalities and opinions, so getting one's point across took energy and a loud voice. One day, we were in the midst of a full-on family argument while seated on our 1950s sectional sofa in the living room. Suddenly, my mother got up and stomped off to the master bedroom. We could hear her sputtering in frustration all the way down the hallway. The next thing we knew, she had reappeared and stood before us with hands gripping her hips and her ample-sized boobies saluting prominently. I'll have you know, she pronounced, I could have been Miss America. With that, she pivoted on her heels once again and left the scene. With jaws dropping, the three of us stared into space in total astonishment. What in God's name could she have meant? It took me eons of time and a lot of analysis to fully unpack the incident's meaning. I believe she was saying to us, I could have had a glamorous life, and instead I'm stuck with you three impossible characters. She was also pointing to the fact that my father tended to be domineering, and she wanted us to know that she was smart in her own right and should be respected. Inside the crevices of this outburst were the signs that she was jealous of how much attention my father paid to me. She didn't like being upstaged by any female, even her daughter. Wrap this all up in a psychological bow, and it explains a lot about my choices in life.
I believe I decided way back then, subliminally, that I didn't want to have to shine from behind the curtain of a husband. Like my mother, I wanted to occupy at center stage, and so I thought remaining single would be a smart way to do that. In making that choice, however, I also paid a heavy cost, missing out on a good marriage and a family. So I want to let the listeners know that I'm going to post a picture of my beautiful mother on the Facebook page. Now back to the Lance debacle. The night of the party, with a heavy heart, I donned my pretty frock and a brave look to face my blind date in the evening ahead. I got through the party somehow, but he was definitely not the one. The next morning, early, I had a phone call from my father. He said, Doll girl, your mother didn't wake up this morning. On the very night that Lance was meant to be with me, my mother had died in her sleep. And where was he now? All alone, I had to endure the loss of my mother and of him. Where was my lover when I needed comforting the most? It was all more than I could bear. As the weeks dragged on, Lance still wanted to be with me. It was a time filled with sadness on my part and confusion on his. The next big act in our play came that August when Lance announced to the world that he was leaving Wells Fargo to return to his family. It was headlines in the business section of papers across the country. More than one client of mine called me about the Atherton house after they'd read of his impending departure. Some also contacted Lance directly, so it became messy for me. In the end, I did negotiate a deal to sell the house to friends, but I was paid the fraction of a normal commission. Another bitter pill to swallow. It shouldn't surprise you that the final scene in this act was dramatic. To celebrate the successful sale of the house, Lance and I met the buyers in the husband's Menlo Park office. Champagne and congrats all around. It was all very professional and above board, except it wasn't. The two of us circled back to my house afterwards where we made sweet love and then said a very painful goodbye. I remember the wrenching ache in my core as I kissed Lance farewell at the door. Love can be physical without being sexual. My insides hurt as if I'd been sawed in half. I told him all along that I didn't play second fiddle well, nor would I be good affair material. Look how much good that had done me. Now I was left in love with no future in sight. I fell back on my Christian teachings, scanning the Bible for verses to soothe my anguish. Sad to say they didn't help much. After not much time had elapsed, Lance called me from New York City, where he was working on developing contacts for his new company. He said he missed me and begged me to come play with him while he was there. It was torture. Of course I wanted to go, but I found the strength to say no. And then, because I expressed myself best in writing, I crafted a long missive explaining why I couldn't come, and I arranged to have it hand-delivered to his hotel. 
I kept a copy of the letter, and the core of it said this. So what do you expect out of a rendezvous with me? A temporary high? Relief from your marriage, which isn't great, but isn't bad enough to change? There is nothing more titillating in my wildest dreams than coming to frolic with you in New York. If you think I'm wild and crazy at home, you should see me when I'm on foreign turf. But it would be like an addict getting a fix. Then I'd have to return home and go through withdrawal all over again. Missing you and knowing you miss me does not keep me warm at night. Before I can move on to tell you about other love capades, I need to finish this story. We're still in 1986, but this pattern with Lance wove in and out of my life until 1991. Five years it took to finally say the end. On several occasions, when Lance came to San Francisco for business, I would pick him up at the airport and we would spend a few days together at his hotel. Good sex, good food, good laughter. It remained thrilling at some level. One time he asked if we could make our rendezvous more frequent. I told him that I'd think about it. After resisting such an arrangement for all those years, I decided that having part of him in my life would be better than having none. So I wrote to tell him of my change of heart. And then I heard nothing for almost two months. Simply put, I was furious. I felt manipulated, betrayed, and abused. So I wrote a letter of such righteous anger and vitriol that it should be in the annals of Dear John letters. I even included a veiled threat about telling his precious wife of our affair. That got a written response. He admitted that my description of him was pretty accurate. And then he went on to write, quote, I'm very sorry. You're a terrific woman and deserve much better than me. I cheated you, and I will always remember that. Whether you believe it or not, my lack of response was not out of malice or not caring. I knew how you felt, understood how difficult it was for you to accept and express those feelings, and yet just couldn't do the right thing. I hope I've learned something about myself. Let me say, as a postscript, that such extramarital relationships are nearly always a dangerous field of dreams. At times, we were clearly in love with a magnetic attraction. And then there were times of utter despair and disappointment on both sides. Was it worth it? Of course it was. Life is a roller coaster, and I will always opt for the ride rather than the sideline. Even if, as T.S. Eliot said, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Well, Michelle, this episode really stands out to me in contrast to the previous one, which was funny and delightful and sexy and cliffhanger-like at the end, because this one, it's beautiful, but it's so, it's sad that the tone leaves me heartbroken for you on two fronts, with your mom's death and the loss of this affair. 
So let's go back to the beginning with a few questions, if that's okay with you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the first thing that stood out to me is the first night you and he are together where you get you drink and you enjoy your your alcohol but you're not much of a drinker and of course you're too tipsy to drive home so where do you end up <laughs> and and the biggest <laughs> bed you ever saw that so I have the image in my head that like took up the whole room can you remind us <laughs> yeah i mean all right so we had this dramatic dinner together where he said those incredible things to me i mean honest to god the That'll have to be on my top 10 love companion experiences. So I'm drunk, and he he insists to take me back to his apartment, which he did. And then he marches me into the bedroom. And I mean, I have never seen such a big bed in my life. <laughs> I, it was huge, huge. So then he, you know, he's, he gets me into his, in the big bad bed, but it was humongous. And also, well, the the part that also really hit me from this was how strong the aphrodisiac was of this man and the force of his wanting you. And I loved your words. He had read me. He wanted what he saw. And that's a, a theme that I think you've talked about before that you might want to remind us of the power of that kind of seduction. Well, again, I've said so many times about that wonderful phrase one of my early therapists told me, which is, women get to choose their men, but only from the men who choose them. And here was a man who clearly chose me. And his charm, his his charisma, his, his own power was very alluring to me. And the other kind of magical thing about it, Sally, is that he was a powerful guy, and he saw that I was a powerful gal. And that didn't stop him, because my experience before that with most American men is that I was a little too much for them to take on. And yet here was this guy who wanted all of it, and I couldn't say no. Right. Well, not only was he not threatened by you, which clearly was a piece of the aphrodisiac, but you describe the next morning in the bathroom when, when you're brushing your teeth with your finger because you didn't have a toothbrush. And he says again, <laughs> you're so beautiful. And he, he meant it. And, of course, your first reaction was what inside? What did you think? I loved hearing that, of course. And I'm standing there naked. I barely know the guy. And yet when he said, you're so beautiful, what does my mind do? It goes to, well, but I'm so chubby. I mean, honest to God, what a, <laughs> what baggage is that? It's it's so sad, and I'm sure that there are so many women and guys, I suppose, who have these voices in their head, these little programs that dog them and upset their well being. And here it was again, raising its ugly head. Yeah. Well, I I agree that most of us have demons in our head and looking back we we look at ourselves and we say why why but it definitely highlights for me a theme that has come up before not just the the body image you had about yourself with chubbiness not being enough but the undercurrent of that which is am I lovable? Am I 
good enough for a man. It was an insecurity that highlights yet again. Is that fair for me to say? Well, I I think that underneath that issue of chubbiness, there is the possibility that my confidence in the male-female arena was not as strong as it might have been. I mean, I was extremely confident in every other area of my life and have been accused of being a little overconfident at times. (laughs) But in, in that area, not so much. And I do believe you're right to point that out. And then you go into how even quite early in with this affair that went on for a while, the attraction was absolutely explosive, but you always knew there were issues. He was Catholic, he was married. And so remind us, you you said some line about the Ten Commandments loud. Can you just remind me what you said? Well, let me recall that because I thought it was meaningful. You know, he he was Catholic, and I'm sure he had a lot of guilt around his having affairs. I, I, I'm pretty sure he was a certified womanizer. So I knew that his guilt was high on the charts. But, and I say, perhaps Presbyterians don't have as much guilt baked into their theology as their Catholic cousins, but the same Ten Commandments scream just as loudly. So by that, I meant that I wasn't Catholic, but I felt guilty about the fact that he was married and that I was not able to resist him. So again, it's so, you know, it's such a taffy pull. It's such a dichotomy because I, you love each other, you're attracted, you want each other, but there are these mores. And the Catholics really, you know, have a guilt system in spades. But the Presbyterians, you know, have the same Ten Commandments, I say. So let me just kind of add a little postscript to this conversation. In Europe, this isn't such a big issue. You know, you can be married and have affair after affair, stay in your marriage, and it's perfectly okay. But in our Victorian America, that doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I also think the point here is that you saw signs early in that, you know, prepped you for this being perhaps an impossible relationship. I mean, as you say, there were clarion signals all over that he was a ladies' man and that you should steer clear. So what was it that made you move forward with him? Well, <sighs> I mean, he was irresistible to me. He was catnip. <laughs> he was, he was, you know, he was a gorgeous man, uh, successful, charismatic. You know, he he had it going on, and he'd been successful in everything he'd ever done, and he really, really wanted me. And as I've said over and over, that does it for me, you know? I mean, I can say yes or no because there are men that wanted me that I didn't want. But in this case, I wanted him back and I just couldn't say no. And I didn't. And you actually said that he told you that he desired you from the moment he first saw you. And then you said that your interest grew like wildfire each subsequent time you saw yeah. him. This was intense. I mean, that, yeah. Well, the first date was incredible. And the second date, was so 
unbelievably romantic. You know, we came down to Menlo Park. It was a beautiful day. We had cocktails on the gazebo. Then we went to this lovely restaurant and had this lovely meal. And the whole time, it's this, you know, it's this courtship was going on. And so then he dropped me off because he had to go to the airport to fly back to his family, which I knew. And as he dropped me off, he said, I can barely stand to leave you. I mean, he meant it. He did not want to go. And then he gets to the airport and he calls me up and he says, I'm falling in love with you. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, a, that's a on. tough one to push away. <laughs> it's like being on The Bachelorette or something. It's like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway. anyway, I loved that. I loved that whole scene. I love the scene, too. And it's very romantic. It's like endless foreplay. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was delicious. <laughs> Then the next part that I'm remembering is the Atherton house closed. So you had to do the, the walkthrough and the, the carpet, the ugly. First, I see the four-poster bed in the first part. Now I see this ugly carpet. <laughs> and I like the way you handled the ugly carpet. Oh, my God. It was the ugliest thing you've ever seen. And, and again, that is like such a scene. This was the just before it closed walkthrough. And so we're together in this huge empty house. And we get upstairs to this gigantic bedroom with the world's but ugliest carpet. And what do we do but christen the carpet? <laughs> of course, the carpet didn't last. The next owners ripped it out. But here we baptize the carpet. But I love how you also said, you know, that it makes the top 10 love capade moment like a scene. So we've got to, we've got at some point here what all the top 10 love capade moments are. I know. We do. We do. <laughs> anyway, this, this definitely, the, the, the taffy pole of emotion that you describe it is very intense in this relationship. And you do say that it played itself out in the boudoir. And it just made me think that sometimes forbidden fruit adds to the passion of the moment, no? Well, yes, I would say that's <laughs> true. But sometimes with him, it didn't always turn out to be hot and sexual. It was sometimes very tender. I, I think that's that speaks to not the forbidden fruit aspect of our relationship, but that he really cared about me. And again, this this Catholic guilt that creeped in. So I think if he if it had just been a fling for him, I don't think it would have been an issue. But it was more than a fling for him. He was conflicted as I was conflicted in a very sincere way, I believe. And so sometimes he had a little issue in the <laughs> sex department. But during those times, rather than being, you know, chagrined, he would just hold me in his arms and care for me and cherish me. And I mean, it was beautiful. But what's beautiful to me, too, as a listener, is that you would cherish those moments, too. You didn't make them wrong for it. Oh, it was so delicious. I mean, being in his arms and sharing our lives together. And it was, you know, had there not been this wife in the way, <laughs> yeah, I think we could have ended up together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. So was he growing disenchanted about his job? all along this time that you're telling us? What was going on with him and the job and the and the the desire to move to the West with his family and all? Well, he'd made this decision to take this big fancy job and he committed to moving his family out here, which is why he bought the house. And then what happened, in addition to the 
issues with our relationship, he realized that it wasn't a perfect fit, that he had taken the job as the third in command at this bank, but that the chairman and CEO didn't really know how to integrate him into their world. And so he was not pleased about that. And I think he began to think, oops, this isn't going to work. So he was conflicted. Yeah. He was having a really hard time. In two arenas. In two arenas, right. Conflicted about you and conflicted about the job. He was he was struggling. And then another sad note when this wonderful party opportunity comes up and he agrees to be your date and you get a beautiful get up to to wow everybody. And then what the frick? He calls it off last minute. Yep. It was about three days before the big party. And he, again, he realized that if he were to move his family into this very same community, and he'd been seen with me as my date at this gala, that could be a problem for him. So when I first asked him, he wanted to come, he wanted to be with me. And then I think he realized that wasn't a very smart move. And so he had to back out. And I could understand his doing that, but it it was so hard. It was so difficult and disappointing. Yeah, the way he did it also, like you said in the read, is that he could have said that first. It's kind of, it's painful the way it happened. You know, I give him the benefit of the doubt here. As I said, when I asked him, he, of course, wanted to be with me. And then as it got closer and closer, he thought, you know, my family's going to be living in this community. They're going to maybe connect dots that they shouldn't. So I wasn't totally shocked that he did that because I was actually shocked he said yes in the first place. Right. So, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that day, with the disappointment, the day of the party, you called your mom and her sweet voice. What did, what did she say to you on the phone? Well, she called me up because she knew that Lance had backed out. And so my buddies, my gal pals, had found this replacement, ironically, from the same bank. The guy was the head of the human resources uh, department. He probably had, had something to do with hiring Lance. I mean, it was all so weird. Such a coincidence. So anyway, my mother said, dear, I hope that he's the one. And so I went off to the party with those sweet words in my ears. And He wasn't the one. And then I get the phone call the next morning from my father. So devastating. And to think that she had called me the very day before. I mean, it was was really hard. Well, it's such a double loss. I mean, loss on many levels all at once. It is hard to bear. But let's give a moment to your mom because... Your mom came up in this episode in a beautiful way, and I know we're going to see a beautiful picture of her. But you told us another anecdote about her from earlier, the (laughs) Miss America line. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Sally, that was so classic, so unbelievable, so show-stopping, so memorable. I I mean, that was an indelible moment in my life, and it was meaningful. I, I mean, as I tried to explain in the book, it's like, 
what was she doing that <laughs> for? What was she saying? And honestly, it was so confusing. None of us knew what the hell she was saying or what, I mean, what it meant. And it took me years, literally, to unpack it, to figure out what she was doing. But the message came through subliminally. And it was part of the reason I decided I didn't want to have to be second fiddle to a husband like my mother was having to be. So it's it's all kind of amazing, our psyche, isn't it? And what things, you know, are left as imprints. It, it, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, no, very similar to like the imprint of your dad telling you once, calling you fat girl and your image forever thereafter, no matter how beautiful you were, you felt fat. And your mother left this indelible image that if you marry, you might have to always play second fiddle. And what I love in what you said was also a real side of your character that you wanted to occupy center stage. So you thought that remaining single would be a smart way to do that. Now that also, to me, is you were a, a victim of the times because in those times, through your mom's lens, women often did have to play second fiddle rather than an equal partner in a marriage, right? Correct. And I think, you know, perhaps today it wouldn't be quite the same, I, although I think it's still an issue. But had I been doing the courtship dating thing now, it might be a different story. But at that point, I thought, I don't want to have to be under my husband's thumb. That won't work for me. Right, right. And so I kind of took a different route. Yeah. And we're celebrating that with you right now, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> so back, back, back to Lance, if that's okay. Yeah. There's more to the Lance story. And, you know, it, it sounds like it got a little messy when, when he actually did decide he's not going to move west. And you had to sell that house, right? Well, it, it, he had made an announcement that he was going to leave the bank, and it was headlines, literally, not only in the San Francisco Chronicle, it was headlines across the country. Right. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. And so all these, what should I say, these opportunists saw the, the article, and so they thought, well, he's going to sell the house in Atherton. So either they called me if they knew me, or they called him directly. And I had to f fight off all these vultures who <laughs> were trying to buy it directly from him. Okay. In the end, I did get to sell it, but it was it was a messy situation. And it sounds like you didn't come out, you know, on top of the deal like you could have, right? Well, I know, but I, I got a, a highly reduced commission. <laughs> right, right, right. But there was a party, and it was all above board, as you said, I think, until it wasn't. <laughs> well... Yeah, we, we met at, at the buyer's office, and we had champagne and celebrated the, the sale. So I was being so professional, and Lance was being professional. But the truth is, it wasn't really so professional. <laughs> and the minute that little celebration was over, the two of us went back to my house, and we made love, and then he had to leave. He was going back to his family, and it was, as I said, it felt like I was being sawed in half. 
It was so painful, you know, kissing him and saying goodbye at the door. It was awful. (gasps) But then it didn't end. No. I mean, I think the next part of this chapter that we heard was when he calls you from New York, right? Oh, my gosh. I wanted so badly (laughs) to go back there. I wanted so badly to go back. I mean, I would have loved to have played with Lance in New York. Are you kidding me? Uh, So what was it, though? What was it at this moment that made you say no and wrote that letter to him? What was it? Because I had just spent, I don't know how many weeks, you know, a couple of months of being in agony over losing him. Mm -hmm. And then he calls and, you know, this alluring invitation. And I thought, okay, well, I could go back there and have fun. And then I'd have to come back and go through withdrawal again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I didn't want to have to do that to myself. So I sucked it up and I said, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, you used, I think you even used the term, it was like a drug. It was like you didn't want to get addicted to this drug again. Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. Well, I had been addicted to the drug, and then I had weaned myself from the drug because he wasn't physically present, and it had been horribly painful. And so, when he called for me to come join him, I thought, well, fine, two or three days of you know being high again, and then I'd come home and crash, and I didn't want to have to go through that. Mm-hmm. It's the the sad truth of many affairs with that are extramarital you know it's like mom's always taught us girls you know if you go with a married man you know in advance where it might end they'll always go back to their wife or if they marry you they might leave you i'm sorry but that's what we were taught yeah it's it's not a a happy scenario (laughs) but then i mean it's a taffy pull as a listener too because it wasn't over yet i mean i think you said it took five years before it, it finally ended, and you wrote the Dear John letter. You actually threatened to tell his wife. You say in a in a vague way, I think is what you said. Veiled, yeah. Veiled way. So you weren't outright about it, but it was enough to get him to write back to you, right? Well, this is after a period of years where he would come to San Francisco in business and we'd spend time together. And at one point he said, well, can we make this a more permanent arrangement? And he knew that I'd been resisting doing that for eons of time. So I said, well, okay, I'll think about it. And then I wrote to him and said, all right, I give in. We can have a an ongoing affair. And then I didn't hear from him for two months. And I was furious and felt manipulated. So then i that's when... I wrote the Dear John letter of all Dear John letters. And it was, you know, I just let him have it. And when I implied that I might have to tell his wife about us, that's when he wrote back to me and said those things. And that, Sally, was the end, finally. But to backtrack just a little bit, what was it in you after five years of back and forth that was willing to say, yes, let, let's let's do this? Well, because it was a five-year thing, and I didn't have anybody else in my life that I loved or was, you know, attracted to or interested in. And so I, I gave it a lot of thought. I thought, okay, well, what the hell? You know, uh, let's make it a more permanent thing. 
that was my thinking at the time. At the time, yeah. So, Michelle, just, just looking back at this powerful episode, really, with a lot of emotion, a lot of loss and sadness, what stands out to me is something that you do that not all women would do, which is you would always opt for the experience over not having it, even if up front you know that it might bring you pain. You knew up front this man was married. It might not end well for you. You opt for the experience. It's really moving to me. Well, again, it happens over and over, doesn't it? It's, <laughs> it's a theme. But it's who I am. In other words, I am going to go for it and see where it leads rather than have a boring life. And God knows I have not had a boring life. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're a lot of things. Boring is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the adventurous part of me. Mm-hmm. The go for it girl. The go for it girl. And it's not over yet, right? We have more to hear. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's much, much more to come. But as I say, as T.S. Eliot says, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. I mean, you again, it's sometimes it's exciting and wonderful, and sometimes it's a crash and burn. <laughs> and I'm willing to sign up for all of it. I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I want to experience life. Touche, sexy mama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, there we are. Another love capade on the books, and there's more to come. And I look forward to telling the world. That's another crazy thing. Why am I telling the world? We'll have to discuss that at another point, too. <laughs> That's at a later point. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com. <laughs>